Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with women in ETFs. We get together with some of the smartest women in this business and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy, and joining me today is Bree Williams, Head of Practice Management at Spider Exchange Traded Funds. And we're going to dive into the world of ESG investing. Welcome, Bree. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so excited we get to to pick your brain today about ESG because ESG is one of the, the big talks of the town in, I think, both ETF land and just asset management land in general. So let's start briefly by, you know, if you haven't heard about ESG, it stands for Environmental Social Governance as it pertains to investing. So, you know, in our little world here, I've seen a lot of different numbers estimating the growth of the segment and just how much U.S. invested assets today sit in some type of ESG strategy. There's numbers out there suggesting, you know, maybe a third of all U.S. assets now sit in the space. In ETFs specifically, last count, there's almost 140 different funds with almost $100 billion in combined assets already. And this is still a pretty new space. So, you know, before we dive into, you know, what ESG means and the opportunity here, are you surprised, Brie, by this, you know, rapid growth we've seen in ESG investing? It's not surprising as much more it is fascinating. But when you look at what's really behind the, tr- the catalyst for growth, it shouldn't take us by surprise because it's grounded in very real changes that have transformed what investors are looking for when they think about improving decision making and managing risks, but also seeking for a way to gain value and deliver on their values at the same time. So to your point, it's definitely a small but evolving space and quite rapidly at that. So the innovation and the transformation that's underway has been a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's always fun to see, you know, a theme or an area kind of catch on fire, if you will, and just see the innovation that comes in that space. But Before we break down a little more, I'd love to actually start by defining what ESG investing actually is. I mean, we know it stands for environmental social governance investing, but I think, you know, sometimes the conversation seems to be really focused on, you know, ideas like carbon neutral targets or, you know, the climate part of this conversation. How do you define what ESG investing is? a really good place to start because the question of defining ESG investing, it sounds rather simple, but the categories themselves, environmental, social governance, they can all be very broad or rather quite specific. And it really depends on who's defining them. So, you know, as a good example exercise, if you were to pull up a Google search and type in what is ESG investing, you'd probably find several hundred results from countless sources. So that's not very helpful. I think Mm -hmm. to ground us, I'm going to point us to using the definition from the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment, USIF, which also aligns with the UN Principles for Responsible Investment, PRI. And their definition, which I think level sets all of us here, is ESG investing is defined as the practice of incorporating environmental, social, and governance factors in the investment decisions and active ownership. I think where the common point of confusion comes into play here is that the number of terms that are available, they're used synonymously in referring to ESG investing, responsible investing, socially responsible investing, 
sustainable investing, and impact investing. And those terms can be used interchangeably, which simply just adds more fuel to the confusion. So when we think about why that is the case, you can definitely point to the history. So ESG investing grew out of investment philosophies such as socially responsible investing, but there are some key differences. Earlier models typically leaned on value judgments and negative screening to decide in which companies they should invest and also looking at avoiding disagreeable businesses or sin stocks, things like Mm -hmm. alcohol, weapons, tobacco, gambling, nuclear power, fossil fuel, and adult entertainment. Second difference that we find is that ESG investing and analysis, you know, on the other hand, is really looking at finding the value in companies, not simply at supporting a set of principles. And last but not least, while while socially responsible investing, SRI uses exclusionary filters to keep companies out of portfolios that are not meeting certain criteria, ESG opts in companies that are making positive impacts in those three factor areas, the environment, the social space and governance. What's interesting about this is that, you know, it's, I guess, the letter soup, if you will, or, or the terminology soup is, is a big problem. We, we saw a little bit of that when smart beta first came up and, you know, what is smart beta and then people having issues with that and is it a strategic beta? And we get really lost in the terminology here. But what's fascinating is that ESG really seemed to have started from this, you know, exclusionary perspective is you, you just avoid the things you either don't believe in or you object somehow, uh, but it's not really related to performance necessarily. So it doesn't matter if tobacco stocks are going up a million percent, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't meet your, your screen. So you're going to exclude that stock. And But it has evolved. The conversation has really evolved uh, as you know, I think we understand better what the opportunity set is here. From that perspective, you know, do you think the conversation about ESG today, is it more about impact investing, you know, or putting your money where your values are? Is it more about better risk management? Is it more about higher returns over time, which is one of the things, the whole governance part of it is is its stated value. Where do you think the, the conversation really sits today? So we've seen a lot of change. I'd say rather dramatic change over the last decade. And that has really enabled investors to have more choice. And the appetite has been pretty insatiable when you think about ESG factors in portfolios, the growth numbers that you listed when we opened our conversation help paint that picture as a, as a factual one. We can look to, you know, the area of where are we when we think about the increase in transparency and the improvement that's necessary in reporting, because that is what's going to help us continue this conversation and move forward more sustainably over time because investors need to have that better understanding of their ESG exposure. It enables them to take action more confidently to achieve their investment goals and monitor the progress. So as to be expected, you know, to the point you're raising, is this more about impact investing, risk management, and or higher returns over time? We still see in our conversations today some concerns lingering. And they're familiar old obstacles to ESG adoption. Those tend to be around performance, Mm -hmm. data analytics, 
as well as cost and choice. And, you know, since we have a few other things we want to talk about today, let's just focus on two of those aspects to get at the heart of the question you were asking. And I think that really lies within the pursuit of sustainable performance, as well as in the ability for an investor to obtain clear and standardized ESG reporting. As it relates to the sustainable performance consideration, intuitively here, most of us would definitely like to conclude that companies that have stronger ESG practices would outperform the broader market over the long term. Yet when we start looking into some of the the data behind someone that would agree with a statement like that, we also hear from them that these same investors are holding on to fears that implementing ESG investing in their portfolio will mean a trade-off. It means I have to give up my performance returns. Mm -hmm. However, enhancing returns isn't and shouldn't be the motivator for ESG investing. Rather, the focus should be on that long-term risk management. For those of you that want to dig deeper into that statement, if you just look to one of our ESG investing papers, from tipping point to turning point, you'll find a discussion on how ESG adoption can enable investors to pursue sustainable performance and provides evidence from numerous secondary studies and that those evidence suggests Portfolios with ESG integration may provide that downside protection when markets are struggling. 2020 was a good example of seeing that in action in real time. And that underscores ESG's potential role as a long-term investment. As it relates to the reporting factor, to be successful, you know, and continue this trajectory of growth and adoption within ESG investing, we all must continue to improve ESG reporting. And the global coverage only gives us an opportunity to improve investment solutions that are currently offered, as well as what will be offered in the future. The evolution of ESG and the opportunity set, it's going to change right along with it. And an important point that I think would be well served to remember is we can only focus on financial materiality so distinctly because increased reporting in non-traditional areas has already been in motion. That all said, there's more work to be done here. We need a consistent framework for companies, index providers, asset managers, but the current limitations or challenges that we're working through, that's no reason to sit on the sidelines. So I think you and I would agree as well as our listeners that this is not about making the perfect the enemy of the good. Hmm, what a great line. I love that line. <laughs> I'm going to remember that and use it again. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to circle back to a couple of things from what you just said. The mm-hmm. first one is the idea of, you know, the risk management focus as opposed to the performance focus. Is that a point of, you know, expectation of what you get out of an ESG investment where maybe the, the conversation breaks down between an advisor and an end client. I know you and I have talked about this before, where mm-hmm. advisor expectations when it comes to ESG is different from a lot of what clients are expecting. Is this where, you know, where the, the problem is or where is the disconnect taking place? So the, the disconnect that we see between advisor expectations and end client expectations when it comes to ESG investing really has to do with two areas. The first one is there's just a opposing perception of how important is this to the investment process and overall philosophy for an individual investor. So what we're finding is that financial advisors are generally underestimating their clients' interest in investing on E, S, and G factors. Advisors are maintaining a widely held belief 
the demand for ESG strategies among the clients that they serve is a non-issue and they cite lack of investor demand as the primary reason. To put some evidence around that, because I think data is really helpful, Mm -hmm. Cerule did some studies here and they have numbers that they can put to those statements. So their advisor survey done last year, they showed that more than half of advisors, 58%, indicated that the lack of client demand was a significant factor. And just adding on to that, another 14% of that uh, advisor segment said it was a more moderate one. When you look at the survey of the individual investor, and this was U.S. retail investor households, really found that 44% of those individual investors would prefer to invest in an environmental or socially responsible way. So that that's a big uh, misperception between the advisor and the individual investor. The second disconnection has to do with, well, what type of client segment, what type of individual investor is interested in ESG? And again, here, Cerule gives us some data for that evidence. So on the one hand, you have advisors frequently saying the interested client segment is more limited. It's limited to high net worth clients, whereas the end client data tells, again, a different story. More than half of households, 56%, with investable assets in a more modest range, so the 100000 to 250000 range, they say they would prefer to invest in companies that have that positive social or economic impact. So to close the gap, because they're sort of clearly on two different camps here, and push past these misperceptions, as a general consideration, we would suggest that advisors take the opportunity to provide some education on why ESG is important, when you think of its um, benefits to the investment decision-making process, risk management, and ultimately the health of companies they're investing in for the long term, to take on that role of educator, even if their clients haven't asked for it specifically. And the reason we say that is it comes down to the bottom line of better outcomes for both practice growth and development, but better outcomes also for the clients that they're serving, the individuals, because aligning financial advice with an individual's motivations and values and helping them invest in what matters to them most, it can be a really powerful way to attract and retain clients. What's really puzzling about these data points is the fact that if clients, could it here be a case where this movement towards ESG is happening at the very, very retail level of maybe do-it-yourself investors, folks who are not working with an advisor, because it's a huge disconnect between what clients are telling advisors and what they're saying in the survey, for example, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to wrap your brain around it. It is, but I would offer this interesting data point that I think knocked me out of my chair when I looked at our own <laughs> research. So obviously, you know, there's many studies that indicate the next generation of investors, particularly the millennial segment, are more interested in ESG factors as part of investment management. But the shocking statistic point to the hypothesis you put forward is our findings showed that 75% of millennials indicated that it's important their financial advisor assist them with ESG investing. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's all just the do-it-yourselfer that's taking this opportunity in putting it front and center. They're looking to help 
and guidance because it's complex and it can be overwhelming to navigate this space well to achieve whatever their motivations are and connect that to value so they can get value out of uh, how they cast that dollar vote in the change they wish to see in the world. Hmm. So so where, where we stand today, the burden really is on the advisors to catch up on the the education, the preparation, the knowledge of the space to to better serve this client need then. I do think that, you know, this year we will be riding the uh, education wave and how important that will be to continued adoption rates with ESG investing, particularly at the retail level. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the other, the other thing I was going to ask you to go back to, to your earlier points about, you know, how to use ESG, just the idea that you should not be sidelined, even as this education takes place and, and all this good stuff. Mm-hmm. This challenge of, you know, no universal set of standardized metrics, the, the conversation about, you know, is this truly an ESG portfolio or is there some greenwashing taking place? here. I mean, what are the risks to jumping in without, you know, very deep due diligence here when it comes to what's available to investors today? Sure. So let's start with greenwashing first. So, you know, that that is just for definition, again, so everyone's on the same page when we say what is greenwashing, that's when firms and funds give misleading claims about their products or ESG credentials. So unfortunately for the investor segment, just because a fund says it considers ESG factors doesn't mean it really integrates them into mm-hmm. their investment decisions. So yes, it's rather murky. And that's, you know, I think uh, one of the reasons why you see governing bodies like the SEC, which recently set up a climate and ESG task force to examine transparency and completeness in ESG risk disclosure and sustainable investing strategies because you need more of that standardization. So you have to look under the hood of what you're buying. Uh, So transparency, the standardization of terms and agreements about what constitutes meaningful ESG initiative as that evolves. We would also suggest that investors take the time to fact check the ESG claims of any company or fund manager. They should be broadly looking at a range of risk and opportunities that would impact their investment returns. And these include ESG factors alongside the traditional financial factors. So when we talk about the role of education and development, as well as working to standardize frameworks and methodology, this is where on one hand, the experienced money manager can be very helpful because they have the resources to conduct a more systematic analysis to discern the green from the greenwashed. So having that active dialogue is crucial when evaluating a firm's ESG credibility, but it's also important for the financial advisor here to help their clients navigate this space, especially when we go back to just some of the basics of the terminology alone. So when I think about, you know, due diligence and or ways to be a prudent investor to the first part of the question you had posed, the way we're hearing that from the financial advisor community is more on the values. So they'll come and put right on the table. So is this more important for my clients to overrate the values they care about or should they be underweighting the values that they're against? And this comes back to the heart of properly integrating 
ESG because effective integration of ESG principles into that portfolio should start with that client-focused process, not the product-focused process. It's not a one-size-fits-all equation. ESG is very personal, and the motivations and goals are going to be unique for each investor. So the answer to the question they put forward isn't necessarily an either-or consideration, but it is about the value and values with a no-compromise approach and how we can put ESG to work to improve decision-making. So for some investors in that discovery process that advisors are doing with their clients, simply excluding certain types of investments may be enough. However, other investors may be searching for that best-in-class investment approach, something that tracks an index designed to emphasize firms that are strongest in their industry with respect to certain ESG criteria. Or perhaps that individual is looking for that integrated approach, and that is about something that tracks an index that incorporates ESG factors while being designed to achieve a target level of tracking relative to a broad benchmark. And others investors may just want that, you know, ESG theme, something that's specific to a particular focus area, such as increasing gender diversity in corporate boardrooms. But I think you'll find, and, and advisors, because their questions are getting sharper, which is encouraging, you know, some of these objectives by their clients are going to span different ESG strategies, and they're not mutually exclusive. So multiple ESG strategies can be combined, often within a single investment vehicle to achieve the investor's specific goals. And they could also be implemented across asset classes. Um, investment styles and investment vehicles. But it all comes back to what's the outcome the individual seeks to achieve, and then the advisor's in a better position to sharpen those strategic factors. Yeah, the the challenge here is is huge because, you know, ESG, they aren't metrics that show up on a company's balance sheet, right? So it's not going to be revenue, your debt, or your profit. It sounds like it really requires some boots on the ground, some phone calls to kind of fully understand how each company or or each portfolio is tackling, integrating real ESG metrics in there. So I guess it's uh, it's a lot of homework for the advisor, but in a way, you know, when people sometimes ask, you know, what's the value of an advisor? Well, let's start with ESG. <laughs> There's a lot of work that goes into that. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it is a business opportunity and it's, you know, there are different ways advisors can incorporate ESG into their practice. They can, of course, home grow it, build it within, or they can lean on some strategic partners and, and outsource aspects of it. So they are providing the level of service and solutions that they would like to and are expected to as part of their fiduciary duty with the clients they work with. Mm-hmm. Now, Brie, I wanted to, you know, to start wrapping things up here. I just, I wanted to ask you about um, asset stewardship. I know you're you're very passionate about ESG and I just would love to pick your brain a little bit about what does that look like today and how how is State Street, you know, really moving the needle on ESG investing? Sure. So with stewardship, that definitely needs to be a determining factor in investment decision making as well as product development client relationship management, 
and reporting. So boards of companies need to continue to be held accountable by investors. And more recently, we can see how that relationship has evolved to be one that's much more collaborative, in particular in support of long-term business strategies and objectives. So back to that risk-managed approach that we were touching on. So as we see the pressure continue to build on incorporating ESG factors in pursuit of positive societal outcomes, which, you know, COVID-19 shined a bright light on the importance of investor engagement with the businesses we invest in is truly paramount. The resilience of ESG-aware companies was clearly on full display last year. So specific to State Street Global Advisors, and given the size of our assets under management, the global scope that we have with our investments, the nature of our investment portfolios, our stewardship role in global capital markets extends beyond proxy voting and engagement with issuer companies. For us, it also includes promoting investor protection for minority shareholders through partnerships with local investors and regulators alongside working with investee companies to encourage adoption as well as disclosures of strong ESG practices. I mean, really the bottom line is effective asset stewardship for State Street Global Advisors lies at the heart of our fiduciary responsibility. We view it as critical, a critical component in how we use our skills as an investor and how we can improve the firms that we invest in, which is an important point for me to draw out here. So we're an asset manager, which means we're agents, we're not principals. So the firm invests capital on behalf of its asset owner clients, and that's done in accordance with their preferences and their mandate constraints. So we are, in effect, permanent capital in public markets. So for as long as a company is included in an index, we will hold it on behalf of our clients. So that does mean we face some limitations that can make our actions look more conventional. So we focus on building for impact. Questions we ask ourselves is how can we be working to the best of our ability with the tools that we have available to affect sustainable change? So as a large index manager, we don't have the option of simply divesting from companies. For as long as they're held and included in that index, we simply can't make the S&P 500, the S&P 499. Mm -hmm. So if you look to someone who's probably ringing in several people's ears right now, Vanguard founder Jack Bogle, you know, he once said, if you're an active manager and you don't like what a company's doing, you sell it. If you're an index manager, you try to fix it. And that's exactly what drives the spirit of our active stewardship engagement with listed companies and the boards on issues that are truly material to their ability to generate that long-term value. So we use our voice we use our vote, and it's in the interest of creating that sustainable change. It's important for all long-term investors to encourage long-term strategy with issuers, and they need to recognize the role that they play in markets. Mm -hmm. No, that's a it's a great point. Just uh, we're all at the end at the end of the day responsible of you know by starting where we put our money in and um, what we're believing in and buying. So it's a great point. Bree, we're going to have to leave it there. I cannot thank you enough for taking the, the time to chat with me today about ESG and sharing your expertise in this space. It's been phenomenal. My pleasure. And thanks for having me back. <laughs> anytime, anytime. <laughs> we have an open door policy. Just show up. Excellent. I'll take advantage of that. <laughs> Folks, thanks for joining us today. For previous episodes of ETF Working Lunch, please check out ETF.com. If you would like more information or learn how to get involved with women in ETF, 
ETFs, check out womeninetfs.com. On behalf of the ETF.com team, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Music.